0: Welcome back to Finding Home with me Scott Harris. This is a special episode. We get to hang out with Mark Morris. Mark is originally from Cape Town and he's the co-founder of a new app which is really exciting called TuneSpotter and has developed it's a groundbreaking media discovery tool. Mark and I talk about his adventure, his voyage, his his journey from being a kid in Cape Town in South Africa during apartheid to as big as it gets, being a part of the transition to a post-apart-time government in South Africa, but also being working his way up from being a an intern in the music industry and as a recording studio rat, a studio rat in New York, all the way to working as a DJ in some of the biggest things, biggest TV and online commercial spots for the most major global brands. And we talk a lot about what home really means, and we talk about, you know, a lot of fun stuff, thinking about the music industry, where it's been and how it plays, how it played a role in New York. So have fun and uh, enjoy the episode. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. Um, now, where are you today? Are you in New York or are you elsewhere in the midst of this summertime?
1: I'm in sweltering summertime in New York. Um, you, yeah.
0: Yeah. We
1: were away away for about a month before this, so I got my fix in of vacation, although we were in Europe and Israel, and it was even more sweltering over there than it is here.
0: But as I understand it, every single person in New York went to Europe this summer, or you know, just because it's so, it's, I can tell you're in New York because you've got the sirens sirens in the background. Uh
1: Exactly. Welcome back to the crazy Thank you. But, Thank, you. Uh, Thank
0: you. Europe was Europe is cheap right now. Everybody says Europe is
1: really, there. really cheap. But if I tell you hot, they were having heat We were in Portugal. Okay. And I mean, it got up to 117 degrees in a few days. 117 10, degrees? Yeah. And otherwise, it was around 104, 105 most days. Ooh, I hope you were near yeah. water. Water or inside.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Well, you're here. I wanted to... I'm really excited to have you here. I wanted to talk a little bit about... Your your life in music, um, and I know you know. There's some top secret stuff we're going to talk about, maybe the tiniest bit later. But I wanted to, you know, start at the beginning. You're, you're not a, you have an accent that doesn't sound like Brooklyn. I think it's 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 South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. So, correct. You grew up in you grew up in South Africa.
1: Yeah, I actually grew up in uh, three cities in Johannesburg uh, for seven years, Durban for seven years, and then Cape Town until I was 22 and moved here.
0: And and during that time, I mean, how did what brought you? You know, every seven years—that's like a biblical thing. Like every seven years, you've got yeah, or something. How, it how was, did you end up. basically my
1: school? dad's moving through for work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we settled eventually in Cape Town, um, which is pretty much the most beautiful city in the world. So it didn't suck growing up there.
0: What is it like to grow up there?
1: It's well, it wasn't just growing up there. Generally, it was growing up there in the eighties. when we did when i did during apartheid um which was a very interesting unique time as you can imagine a lot of tension but also and this is unfortunate but because of the political situation the white class lived very well you know because of the way that they'd set it up it was i mean it was awful and so we from a childhood point of view we had a pretty idyllic childhood there was no crime we could hitchhike at three in the morning somewhere Everything was sort of easy. It was small. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a very, very unique place. You know, I don't think anyone in the world has pretty much experienced a childhood in that period. Even my brother who grew up way after me because he's much younger than me, um, he grew up post-apartheid in a, obviously a much better country, but things were very different. It was more normal like the rest of the world. I was almost like this closed insular bubble at the time.
0: And, and where does where does that fit in with, say... You know, you've, you've all watched, you know, Paul Simon coming to, you know, coming and, and all the controversy that sort of stirred up as he's recording Graceland in, in like the mid 80s. And people are like, well, if you go there, you're supporting, you're somehow supporting apartheid. Um, when did you hit high school? Like, when was it, when did you become politically aware that this was just. Oh, we
1: were, we knew from the beginning um, The uh, the Jews in South Africa were very political. They were very much uh, part of the struggle. A lot of them were arrested. Um, a lot of them were, you we never saw them again. Um, so as, and being going to a Jewish day school, we grew up knowing exactly what was going on. Nothing was sugarcoated. Um, so it was it was difficult in that we knew what was happening, but there was almost nothing we could do as younger people. As we got older and into high school, into college, people would demonstrate, they would get involved. Um, people's phones were tapped. I mean, I can't even tell you how I many of our friends and family's phones were bugged. It was almost like the Stasi back then. They knew exactly who to keep an eye out for, who was causing trouble. Um, Any song that had any kind of political lyric was banned. Um, International artists uh, boycotted coming there, as you remember. Uh, A lot of the companies pulled out, Marlboro, Shell. um, Apple, in fact, pulled out. There were only two large acts that came out during the apartheid years, both to Sun City, which was... It was not supposed to be South Africa, but it was. It was basically a homeland controlled by South Africa, and it was Queen who, at the top of their the biggest fan in the world at the time, eighty five, and Frank Sinatra, and both of them said, "Censor us. Good luck. We're going to South Africa to play for our fans." And there was obviously no one could do anything because they were both so huge. But those were the only two that got through
0: in that period. So they, it wasn't. So it wasn't that other artists didn't want to be there to show support in some way but you see that's what you would think
1: you would think right that you know there's that whole case with israel at the moment and there's some artists who go well we need to shine a spotlight on it and the others who say well i'm supporting it if i go there and generally the rest of the world says don't go there because we are going to look like you look at you like you're supporting it um and those two bands as i said uh, them and frank were like we're going we've got our own reasons we don't support it but we're going um And then Paul Simon was different because he was coming out and working with people. I've been very lucky over my career that I've worked with this whole band that was there and recorded it. And so I've talked pretty in depth with them. Um, And they didn't see it the way that the press saw it. They saw it as he's coming to basically bring our music to the world. He wasn't appropriating it. He was bringing us with him. They played on tours, you know, the entire Graceland tours and since then. Um, It was a massive album. It did shine a spotlight on South Africa. Um, So, yeah... I know there's factions that see it like that, but from within and from the music industry side, it was never looked at like that, Funny enough.
0: Now, when did you first start getting into music? Because I mean, we're gonna talk a lot about music, but when did um,
1: you start? So my mom was always very into music. When I was growing up, there was always music in the house. She was friendly with DJs. She always had you know, the, the newest, latest stuff uh, being played. Um, they were big radio listeners, as I'm sure everyone was around the world. We didn't have television in South Africa until 1977.
0: So wait, when you say your mom was friends with DJs, you mean like radio DJs?
1: Um, No, even like club DJs. Club DJs, okay. Yeah. So she would always get these like, I'm just thinking about it now, which happened for years. And I've probably got some of the tapes because I keep all my tapes from like the 70s from clubs uh, that the DJs would make for her of like a night out. And then we'd listen to that. And uh, yes, I was really, really into music from a very, very early age. Um, although it was more in my head as opposed to, you know, I was young still anyway. So up until about 10, I was always a big car guy. Like cars were my life all over my walls. Everything was cars, cars. And I was sick one day and I was 10. And I asked my mom, she was like, oh, I'll bring you some car magazines. And I said, yeah, but can you also bring me one called, um, I would say Top 40, I can't remember the exact name. She's like, okay. And she came back and she's like, are you sure this is this is a music magazine? Is this what you wanted? And it was literally that week that I decided off to listen to the radio. I was the guy who made all the lists, who was number one, how long some might be. I had books full of it. I mean, I was just couldn't consume enough of it, but it was all through radio back then.
0: You were, so you were now, were you getting, because my, my current knowledge base of what was happening in, in South African music was, is, is only either from a Paul Simon documentary and this sugar man. Rodriguez, you know, where there was some conversation around like what actually made its way Mm -hmm. into you know onto radio and 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 kind of underground and whatever i mean were you getting what percentage of like so we were were you getting
1: so south africa back then interestingly enough uh the south african music 60s and 70s was actually much bigger internationally than it was after that it was just the the world was like that at the time there were songs that were huge in south africa that we had no idea if they're american british south african it was all one um we did have everything from the U.K., everything from, from the U.S. And I've always said growing up there was very unique because you had them all coming in from all over. So you could pick and choose. Our charts looked like a, you know, mishmash of the entire world's charts, which is really what's happening now with Spotify. But in the last 20, 30, 40 years in the U.S. or the U.K., that's very very been very U.S.-centric and U.K.-centric. You know, their charts never really crossed over every once in a while. We had it all. So we would pick and choose from the best we our knowledge base was actually probably bigger than most other places because of that. Um, so, yeah, we nothing was kept out of off the airwaves. Okay, so
0: it's a ten years old, and your 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 mom's kind of even more in the know than you are. At least at ten, and yeah. And you start just writing down. You just want to know who are these bands? You start I mean, like, are you researching them?
1: Well, as much as you back then, it was you couldn't, re- you know. I was just listening, so it was radio DJs telling you. It was the back liner notes of albums who did what, Um, I was always that guy who knew all the the musicians and that. Um, Just just taking in as much as possible. I mean, I used to go to bed with headphones on, playing either the radio or my favorite albums on repeat the entire night for about 20. In fact, I did it right up until I was 22 and came to live here.
0: the, The one mistake that you made, that I made as a kid, they had that cassette deck that you could just keep playing it on repeat, right? Like, you kept rotating around. And I went to a Cousins, and they were playing Pink Floyd's The Wall. And then there's this moment where there's this loud, super loud screaming. So every, you know, hour and a half or so, you'd wake up, like, to some screaming and go, oh, and then you'd fall back asleep. But, you know. Exactly.
1: These days, you could program it and remove that track, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, and were you also playing, uh, playing music at the same
1: time? Not, not at that point. Uh, at that point I was, um, what I did do when I was, cause I was 14 when I moved to the next city, when I was about 12, I started dabbling in DJing. Um, and it was literally an old turntable, uh, another old turntable. I found, um, an old cassette player, old speakers. I'd wire everything together. And, um, take them to someone's place, you know, more like friends stuff, or if it's someone's sisters, a little sister's party. Um, before I then moved to Cape town, which is when i got more, a bit more into it. But I was always that guy who made the mixtapes and brought the music to the party and didn't let anyone else put their stuff on. And yeah, I was sort of that guy. In fact, my nickname in Cape town became DJ just because I was the DJ. <laughs>
0: and now, and, and so when did it become a, a bit more, uh, um, when did it, did, what was the shift? Like, when did it go from, you know, the kids' parties and, like, being the guy with the taste to, you know, something?
1: Well, where- proper DJing, I mean, proper, proper DJing, I only really started when I came to live here. You know, like, anything outside of friends' parties and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that was when I was 22. And I'd say when I was about 24, I bought a proper big Pioneer DJ setup. And that was when I started properly DJing here.
0: And, and in the interim, so you're at you're – you're going to college – Where did you, in South Africa? So
1: I went, um, I finished school in high school in Cape Town. I went to study for a year in Israel at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did a year there. I did a year in Cape Town, uh, which was sort of my second year. Um, And at that point, and South Africa is four years. And at that point, I was like, I need to go to New York. I'd been to New York at the end of matric. I'd fallen in love with it. I was like, this is the place for me. I can't stay anywhere else. Um, I had a nice job uh, in clothing, actually brought the Ninja Turtle uh, franchise to South Africa, um, you know, in all the licensing stuff. So the guy that I worked for was like, listen, stay. I know you want to go to New York, but I think we could make this a lucrative thing. Anyway, I was like, that's great, but I need to go. I need to go. I need to do music. I was too, it was too small back then. Cape Town, in South Africa become very small. I mean, even though it is small. Um, and i had been tempted with New York. And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I was like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to set my paper, put my papers in order, get sponsored, which I did, luckily enough, and work up until I can make some money until I can go. And I went shortly. I did the army first for a year, which I had to do uh, because it's con- it was conscription back then. As um, soon as I was out of there, a couple of months, and off I went to New York.
0: And is this, this is pre or post? This is, this is post-apartheid.
1: So this, the army, was actually, it was 1991. So it was literally that turning point of, um, I think Mandela came out around, just around then. So to give an example, my intake was the last intake that you had to go to the army. So after and that, the it very became- last I was the very last purposes. compulsory intake, yeah. Um, and so because, you know, at that point, apartheid was pretty much over, there was, you know, only good stuff coming into the country. Um, they felt there was no need uh, for the army. Um, we went to see Nelson Mandela when he was released, the day he was released from Polesmoor. I remember, and he came to speak at the square. It was the first time anyone had seen him, pretty much, you know, who was alive, young people who were alive. And it it was, I mean, it got pretty out of control. In fact, I'll never forget standing, they were shooting us with rubber bullets, which is what they tended to do back then. And so the crowd was all over the place. And I'll never forget the Reverend Jesse Jackson pretty much was standing above me, clinging onto a light pole. Um, It didn't matter who you were, you were ducking or, or diving from that. But that was the start of the new South Africa coming to being because the elections was in 94
0: after that. And you were already, by that point, you had already.
1: So 92 elected. is when I moved, to new York. I moved to New York. Yeah. I moved literally. I mean, I would have loved to stay during those period because it was an incredible period in South Africa. It really was after what we'd been through. It was the rainbow nation and, you know, there was such optimism and, uh, yeah, I was in cold freeze in New York and they were all having a good time in South Africa. You, you said you were sponsored
0: um, to come to New York. So you had a job here. Yeah, so I had. It, I got a job.
1: Yeah, it was a, as a pretty much an intern yeah. uh, at a recording studio, and it was a recording studio. It wasn't a regular recording studio. It was a recording studio production house, um, which meant that it did didn't just you know rooms for hire. We actually had composers. We had twenty composers on staff. It was this massive twenty thousand square foot beautiful space. I mean, absolutely beautiful with. Massive SSL rooms um, and boards. SSL and is a big. Is a that's big like control. the biggest, um, most expensive yeah. console recording console. Yeah, right. with Which, all
0: the with all the faders that people stu- exactly. Think, when they think about recording studios, that's what they're when they think that's what it is. The SSL is like the cattle. Absolutely. I mean,
1: these days you don't even need these days. It's all done with a mouse and that. But back then, you know, it was a it was a big uh, big thing to have those. And uh, what was great was I was exposed to all kinds of music on every level, a lot of music for pictures. So we did primarily commercials with jingles back in the day. The jingle market was massive. There was a lot of money floating around. Um, there was no licensed music around then. So we would have, I mean, sometimes we would have a Philharmonic in a couple of times a week, The sym- you know, New York Symphony, all the guys i have been reading on the back of my albums my entire life, we, that's who we'd bring in, um, You know, the drama from this and the guy who played on this. And it was just unbelievable. It was musicianship at the highest level that I was exposed to working my, my way up from systems engineering, engineering, mixing, producing, um, and the talk, studio talk, evolved. Talk over about the,
0: the talk about the, the studio, um, the environment uh, in New York at that time because it almost there are almost no studios left today. No. but talk, can you talk a little bit about?
1: Yeah, that was the day. The gold. Those were the golden days. You know, the Power Station and the Hit Factory and um, Avatar, and there was. I mean, it was just such an amazing time. Musicians coming in and out of sessions. Um, everything was based around the studio. You know, it was all about the, the hub as the recording studio. And what's interesting is we, as I say, we had 20 or so writers rooms that were fully contained of different sizes. Some had bigger boards, some had small ones, tons of synth and, you know, all of the gear. And these days, one of those is what's considered a studio these days. You know, so like you're listening to something on, the, on, on Spotify today and you're like, and that was recorded most probably in one of those not in a massive studio. Um, but I, what was great about that was I had, the one perk was we, on the weekends, we could do whatever we wanted the studio. And so I would just go Saturday
0: and Sunday? Saturday,
1: Sunday, even nights, if there was no one working there. So I would produce bands often. I'd go find these bands, I'd say, come, cost you nothing, I'll produce you, we'll figure out what we do. And I would bring them in and I'd engineer them and they'd have this massive room. Back then it was 24-track tape. So there was no Pro tool I mean, this is earlier, before Pro Tools. This was editing with razor blades, and you know, you had to commit if you wanted. To, you know, it wasn't like let's do a million takes and comp something. Um, but I got to, I, I got a lot of good experience working like that because you had to really. I mean, I was I was telling my son because he's doing some music. I could punch in three times within one word. You know, so if you needed one syllable from another take, and that I would just be punching in and out and, I got really, really good at that kind of thing. I worked with some amazing you, engineers. You're
0: talking about on analog you yes. were able to punch in on a syllable.
1: Yeah. So basically if like, you're that's going like shooting
0: like, a ping pong ball into outer space and hitting like a rock rocket yeah. or something, right? Yeah. That's,
1: and it's all with fingers. It's all like, you know, it's tape up oh, next, back forward. It was I only realized later on what you know what those skills gave me. You know, then editing literally with a razor blade between two little, you know, drums. The kick drum up. Oh, there's the kick cutting it taping it together yeah and what
0: bands were there any bands that that went on to uh to have um, a variety?
1: so i got to work with i got to work with so many different people in so many different aspects um a couple of my bands you know i, I work with many with young bands that went on i mean none of them really actually don't know to this day they all got to a certain level you know none of them became the biggest bands in the world but i got to work with in different guises a lot of other artists You know, I got to work with Paul Simon, with Art Garfunkel, with James Taylor, with um, uh, David Byrne, with B.B. I mean, there was just so many and all different for all various reasons. Some were doing commercials. Some were doing a soundtrack song. Some were doing tracks for an album. Some were rehearsing for their album. Um, You know, uh, I got to work with um, some incredible producers and writers who would come in. Like I spent a day with Bette Midler where all she was doing was going through songs that artists, because she doesn't write, people had sent her. And just going through each key and doing it in every key and making notes, and I was very lucky. I was exposed to a lot of moments. Now Rogers, I got to work with now for two years, which wow. was incredible. Um, this is pre- this is post Bowie, post Bowie, and I got to work with Tony Visconti very closely. Wow. Which is you know so in fact Tony called me up a while back because we'd worked with the Dan- we uh, brought him in for a Dandy Warhols thing I was doing. And he was like, you know, I love those guys. I want to call them and produce the album. And then something happened with Duran Duran. And looking back, and I was like, wow, so that probably happened because I put, okay. So a lot of those cool moments happened. Um, but it was 24-7 work, I must be honest. It was literally, I would go home sometimes, shower, and come straight back to the studio.
0: Now, you're, 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 a, you're an outsider like so many New Yorkers. Right? You come right. in, you become, a, you become a New Yorker. At some point do you you like I miss it you, do you miss South Africa in some way? Oh
1: absolutely. I mean all my my entire family and my wife's family and a lot of friends um, are still there. Um, we're fortunate besides COVID these covid years that we've been going back at least once or twice a year. Um our family comes here. But yeah, it's definitely if someone says, Oh, you New York 30 years, that's so it's home and I'm like, Well, it is home, absolutely, but so is Cape Town. New York's a more familiar home because I haven't lived in Cape Town for 30 years, even though I'll be going back. Um, but I definitely consider them both home, which is interesting. I don't know. And I can't even wait one more. I would have maybe even wait to South Africa more because I'm from there. I, d- I don't know. It's a tough one to answer.
0: Well, right. So at some point you get, you've, you've got your chops here, you know, you're doing, uh, you know, you're not working 40 hours a week, you're working 80 or you're working mm-hmm. 120 hours a week or whatever, You know, lighten, burn the candle at both ends. And at some point, you have the chance to go back to South yeah. Africa. Yeah, that was really special. And
1: um, that was great because I'd never worked there in the industry. Yeah. And especially that things were changing and this was becoming the most incredibly vibrant you know, country and with the music, the music was taking off. And the, I, was, I was actually jealous that I wasn't there at that period. And I was like, that's the one thing I would have loved to have done. And I was there in 94. Um, I was still actually pretty much an intern slash assistant engineer, like very low on the totem pole at the studio. And I went back for three week holiday to see my family. And um, my cousin, who's in New Yorker, was actually out there at the time. And they were crafting the new constitution because South Africa obviously needed a completely new constitution. And I went to visit him at Parliament. He was one of the Americans who came out to help them and uh, as he was leaving as i was leaving i heard him someone say oh we must talk about that song and obviously my ears picked up i said what song and he's like oh wow you know what we're looking for a song like a bespoke new song like a wheel the world but for the constitution and if you want to have a go so i said of course i do so i I quickly went home and i called a friend of mine who lives there who's a really established songwriter producer and i called him and i said this is what's on the table if you want to get involved he said, Absolutely, so we spent a week or two recording like he composed it, he was the composer, uh, I executive produced it and produced it with him, and we got this this basic rough demo done and so we submitted
0: so this is a demo for not a not a, um, an anthem but like a celebratory like a
1: wheel of the world if, if a country put out a wheel of the world,
0: yeah, you know that like... we are support like just a celebration of this the birth of this this new this new, uh, diverse and 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 uh, you know all of this possibility on the table now. Right. So, like that's what we're talking about. Okay. And a new
1: constitution, which you know, think about it. How often do countries get to from scratch? Right. Have a new constitution uh, where, where everyone where everyone gets involved and gives you know like it's it's not just from people then. It's like what do we need to put in right now? So it was it was very cool. But the okay. thing was that he said, okay, he has the the good news is it's down down to two of you. You it's you know down to yourself and the guy, funny enough, who I used to was like an MTV DJ equivalent, who was someone I grew up watching on television and then was the producer. I was competing against him. And, uh, and there was no guarantee, but he did say, but you have to be here for the next three months. It's going to take three months for them to decide. And I was like, oh, no, how am I going to pull that one off? Anyway, I called my studio, <laughs> my tail between my legs, and I said, I've got this incredible opportunity. I, I really, I have to... Anyway, they weren't happy, but they said, cool. Uh-huh. So I ended up staying for three months, every day waiting for that phone call. Just, just uh, so
0: what were you doing during this three months? You had to phone? Oh, this I, actually, I
1: actually started DJing. I brought my DJ gear out there, so I actually started DJing like pretty regularly over there. My wife, uh, Bev, actually went back to her old job, which was at a design studio and advertising. So she went there, I was DJing. Um, you know, We were having fun, <laughs> it was Cape Town back then. Um, yeah, and because I was probably not making much money as it was in New York at the time, because of my position, I probably covered, it was cheaper in South Africa anyway, and my DJing probably just, you know, <laughs> made it equal. Um, and then I got a, got a call, yeah, I'd say, so I'd say I got a call two and a half months later, because I stayed there for another two weeks after, and to say they picked it, and now we've got to go record it. So, I mean, so over the song. Moon, they chose your song. They chose ours as the official song, It okay. was called uh, One Law for One Nation. And um, flew to Johannesburg to a top studio over there, um, recorded, you know, brought musicians in, brought singers in. Uh, we had a male and a female vocal. It was like a, a, you know, a co-lead vocal. And then- Are these famous people? Uh, she was pretty famous in South Africa. He was an up and coming famous guy, yeah. Um, yeah, she was actually very famous back then. And then the day of the constitution, the actual big, big day of it all, um, we went to, the, to parliament. There's an incredible picture so the guy who was who was running the whole who, the, the song and who was to chose everything is now the current president Cyril Ramaphosa. wait
0: wait um, hang on hang on hang on the guy who chose the song who made
1: the decision the time, yeah right? he was the, it was his project i see so uh He's now
0: he, the president of south, yeah, africa. Of
1: south africa yeah Soro Ramaphosa. South africa. at the time so at the time it was um let's just think back then it was nelson mandela who right. was the president After that became Tabo Mabeki, who was there as well. I'm just thinking there's a photograph on the stairs. There was the previous president, F.W. de Klerk, who who was coming out of apartheid. And there was um, Soroma Posa. And there's the photo that we have is all of them one next to each other. Um, And so he was the one at the time who greenlit it all and got involved in it. There's actually a documentary that I'm in about him at the time. But we were invited that day to bring the band and to perform it. So my parents and everyone were watching behind the rope. We were like VIPs at the front there. Um, we performed it live. It was shown live on television around the world. And then right after that, uh, they played it on every radio station in Africa at the same time. And then I just, my phone started ringing. I was doing interviews like either on the phone or going to the studio. So for that, and then that night, I was invited to Nelson Mandela's house for a dinner to then play the track again. We, you know, we brought the band over. So we brought the band, we performed it, we met him, and then I DJed the party afterwards. So that 24-hour period was the most surreal time of my entire life. For that moment, I felt on top of the world like a king until two weeks later, I got back to New York or a week later, and I'm like, guys, this is what happened like, great. Can you go wrap the chords over there and just move the drums? We've got a session at two. Humble, yeah. uh,
0: the time oh, yeah. to, uh, back to humility.
1: Yeah, so it was, I must say, that was just, and I, I was so happy that I got to be involved in something that was so, you know, powerful that I, I never thought afterwards, oh, I should be there doing something African or, yeah.
0: And so you bring that, you know, you're capable of doing something absolutely incredible. I mean, you've, you've. It, well, you know it, what it is. To, it's...
1: Yeah, it's the, exactly. I mean, there was, uh, when I say lit, no one cared, I mean, literally no one cared. There's <laughs> no one person studio you, you know, who would be like, oh my God, tell me about it. That sounds amazing. Oh, they didn't even know what I was talking about. Well, I'll tell you something also, back then, it wasn't that cool to be from South Africa before, I'd say for the first two years, before, you know, apartheid sort of ending. And um, I had a lot of African-American musicians, you know, that I worked with, some of the best in the world. And they go, oh, I love your accent. Where are you from? And at that point, I'd always freeze up, you know, not knowing how they are going to respond. So I'd go, "Um, Bantry Bay, which is my suburb. You know, it's like Upper West Side. And they go, (laughs) oh, where's Bantry Bay? And I said, it's like off the coast of Africa. I kept it very, very vague. And I would laugh about it afterwards with them. And they would be like, oh, man, you totally should have told us. We were like, you know, they said, we wouldn't have had anything. And some of them were like, yeah, maybe at the time we would have felt something, you know. So it was very interesting that how for a couple of years, I had to really pussyfoot around. Nowadays, like, everyone's been there. They love it. Back then, it was looked at very differently.
0: Because you, you sort of got blamed. You might have gotten. what South African. Blamed yeah, for, yeah you're, that's it. You're like, you were complicit somehow, even though. Yeah. Right. And. So you come back. You've been DJing in, in, in Cape Town. You've yeah, the
1: DJ in Cape Town was oh, Yeah, yeah. Sorry, DJing oh, when I was, I was there. So, yeah.
0: you, so you were there, and then you're you bring that. Are you, are you now DJing in New York as well? Like you're, yeah. You're so now, the then LA. I started. At night or DJing?
1: Yeah. Right, I was literally doing everything. I mean, I would say for many many years, I DJed three times a week for ten years. I had three uh, residencies, three times a week. Besides parties that we would throw on weekends or one-offs or celebrity parties, so. Often I would be morning straight to this DJ and back home at 2, 3 in the morning, back again at 8. I mean, I've I've been known to be not much of a sleeper, I, you know, usually three, four hours a night sometimes. So it was just, you know, it was just the grind. I mean, it wasn't really, as, as I said, the DJing I've always loved. And it was, you know, pretty lucrative. And it's, um, but yeah, it was a very specific kind of lifestyle for a while.
0: And, and then the the digital age sort of creeps in. And all of a sudden you go from huge SSL, you know, recording uh, consoles to digital. And yeah. then you sort of track the entire, you know, the, the recording industry in New York to you're doing commercials. At this point, you, you're, you get into more commercial work. Is that kind of. So, what
1: yeah. So, well, I was always the studio was always very. See, then the budgets were huge. I mean, huge. They could afford, you know, we had be King, we had big artists singing them, we had amazing writers writing them. I mean, most of the, I was there, I would say, for the 90s, for most of the jingles that you remember, the, the really catchy ones for the huge brands were recorded in our studio or written in our studio. Um, I mean, just I was exposed. there was a 10-year period of that amazing studio musicians and jingle writers, but that died towards the end of the 90s with the advent of... Um, Pro tools and smaller systems where you don't need as much. Big you, the, uh, composers using synths rather than orchestras, and so budgets because of that would come down. And it sort of was the you know, the tail wagging the dog where they the budgets came way way down. You weren't getting all those people in. You didn't need studios like you used to. Uh, the industry was changing, um, and at that point I was getting a bit. I'd, you know, I'd done my thing there. I was very into songs, so I was always into you know like I'd, in fact a couple of times when they were like, oh, we need this composer. I'd throw a song in there and go, what about this song? It's already done. It's got, you know, and they're like, yeah, no, that's okay, but we'll rather, because there was more money to be made back then in studios than in, you know, they would get a piece of the song, not the whole thing. And so I was like, okay, it's time to leave. And I went out on my own and got pretty much mainly into licensing, uh, sync licensing, which is finding a song for a commercial, for a movie, for a uh, trailer, a TV show, and licensing, it and putting it behind it. So that's, that's the direction you wanted to Yeah, I saw it was happening in Europe uh, and the UK with the Levi's commercials, um, and and America wasn't really doing it. In fact, the first two that were pretty much the things that launched it here was um, Nick Drake, Pink Moon for VW, and Sting at the time with Sting, Desert Rose and Jaguar, which was a win-win for everybody because uh, they got the song, he got the music video done, it was the full song with the Jag, it was just brilliant. And that really kick-started the licensing revolution.
0: And, you know, FAST, so so that lasted, that lasted for, That is that still kind of, um, you know, what, what did your...
1: Oh, yes, yeah. so I, I was an independent music supervisor for 20 years. Um, in fact, I'm not saying I'm not now, but I haven't, because I'm working on another project, I haven't worked too much in that in the last, say, year and a half. But, yeah, up until COVID for 20 years, that was my main thing was music supervision.
0: And, you know, if there's any... In your time, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by you know, the outsider perspective on New York, as you've watched, you know, an industry. I mean, essentially, I don't want to say it's disappeared because it's not. It's just moved. It's moved into, back into apartments. It's moved, you know, into different spaces. The, the studios, you know, Hit Factory became condos. You know, the, the real mm-hmm. estate, the real estate uh, industry. You know, bought all these buildings and, and turned them into, you know, uh, a residential, residential stuff. You know, what's been your perspective on New York? Has it? Um, how do you how do you look at the music scene here and the the cre- the, the, the scene for creative expression? Has it? It's
1: definitely gone behind closed doors, because as you said, then it was more of a you know you've got a studio that the musicians hanging out. It would be a melting pot. Yeah, um, it's because, you know pro tools. It's funny. I was—I I never knew computers when I came to live here. I, was just, I never had them. I never grew up with them. I was scared of them, to be honest.
0: Well, you said so you didn't so even foreign. have
1: TV until nineteen. So exactly. Better, so so right. there you go. So, so that must make sense. Um, so when I came here and as sold Sound Tools, which was the two-track, black and white two-track one, before Pro Tools, which is the big digital editing hundreds of tracks, um, someone asked me to do something on it there and I actually sort of shied away and I let someone else do it because I I was scared. And the studio owner said, okay, I can see what's going on here. He said, I'm sending you to Pro Tools. It's coming out next week. I'm going to send you for a week course. I went to it. I fell in love with it. I mean, I can't even tell you. And I came back and I would say um, unashamedly for about a year, maybe six months, I was probably the best in New York. The fastest, best editor from an editing point of view. I was not really about recording these days, the record. I was just about give me anything to cut up Move around, paste, uh, make anything out of. I was the guy, um, and I, I loved Pro Tools, and I did it up, right up until a few years ago. Um, and it became very expensive, and I think they, you know, I didn't have it anymore. And now I looked, into it. I'm like, oh wow, back then it was free. I could plug a little dongle. Now it's a whole big thing. Try to find ones online; they're not the same. But uh, that was my world: it was editing and mixing digitally.
0: And and now you're. You've got. What can you tell us about you've got this this top secret project?
1: Yes, yeah, um, so I can tell you. I can tell you the name. Uh, it's called Tune Spotter. Um, it's basically in and around the world of music and picture. Uh, we're doing something that's never really been done before. Um, it's discovery. It's 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 very cool content, um, and we should hopefully be coming to market Within the next six months or so, we're very far along. We're testing beta testing at the moment, but it basically brings together my last twenty or thirty years of New York, of everything music and everything video. Um, I'm a huge movie buff. Um, this ties it all into one one thing.
0: Right. You're you're if you know, you're what I'm what I'm hearing is like you know you you people you're like back to being a ten year old kid. Exactly. Where- You know, you're providing that kind of, um, I mean, I've always found, I'm not the person that has, I've leaned heavily on on platforms to kind of discover music Mm -hmm. where, you know, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not going into a club necessarily to learn about the band. Like I might hear it on the radio or maybe somebody tells me, but largely it was, you know, some platform needed to help the serendipity of radio, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you fall in love in some way. So you know, I think most people do need a little bit of a hold, a, hold, a hand holding, to, exactly. to learn about things. And it is a an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming world uh, of Spotify or um, wherever people listen to music. You know, the, the Pandora. I, well, you pick one song you like, and then you sort of let them create a mm-hmm. radio station. That's a wonderful thing. You're like, what is that? You know? right. But you, you're. It's all about the strength of the algorithm at some point. And so, yeah. It, it, the better, I mean, if I'm hearing you right, it's like if you've, if you've created a, a, a mousetrap that really allows people to find and discover things that really.
1: And it's in a unique way. I mean, if you think of, you know, these days, the cool stuff's not being discovered on the top 40 because it's already there. No. It's being discovered it's... in TV shows and commercials and in films and in, on TikTok and all these places. Right. And if you think of what it is, it's being discovered with something with picture, you know, it's not being discovered as a, as a standalone. I mean, it's also being discovered that way at other places, but there's a huge, uh, look at Shazam. You just hold your phone up because you want to know what, you know. I what mean, is that?
0: What is that? Exactly.
1: Right. And then all of a sudden you'll see that song. Right now the Kate Bush, um, Wuthering Hearts from Stranger Things. Right. I mean, Wuthering Heights" running up that hill. Yeah. That is, that's now brought this into the zeitgeist completely because right. it's well, never happened my, before at that level.
0: My kids will play me, the, the music, I've always felt like music is almost out of time, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you listen to a song, you're having a converse, you're some part of you, not like your, you know, your day to day person, like this other part of you is having a conversation with the person who wrote that song. Right. It's like, right. you're not having, it's out of time. Mm-hmm. So when my kids are discovering like take on me from 1980, whatever, or Kate Bush or some song that was like, mm-hmm. it's not popular today. And then right. it becomes nothing Massive. again. And like, yeah. you know, so all of a sudden, you're having a conversation with your kids about music that they don't even think of it as popular today
1: or yesterday they or don't
0: care when it, when it was recorded. Oh, that's old. Yeah. Oh, I remember saying, Oh, my parents listened to some, I mean, although my parents listened to all Motown. So I thought it was like, oh. I was pretty lucky. It wasn't like, you know, it could have been a lot of other stuff. Right. But right. the conversation around music has completely shifted because if you like it, who cares when it came out? Right. Absolutely. And who cares who it is?
1: It doesn't move you. Right, it's a very, we are living through, a, especially for someone who, is, like me, was obsessed with music and radio and charts and all that and albums. And it's such a completely unique world now, the way we, our relationship with music, the actual relationship with music. Um, you know, I've got my sons who was obsessed all just underground hip-hop, underground, underground. I was like, come expand your mind. And all of a sudden, without me doing anything, he's starting to, and he starts getting into songs and cool stuff. And then he's got a playlist that like I would have made you know, sharing each song, and it's not about what everyone else is listening to, and it's not about what's cool. It's just what do I like? Putting it all together, and they're all living next to each other. You know, where's an you're Like those two can't be on the same album and together on the same mix. It doesn't make sense. Anything goes now. Um,
0: yeah, it's like this. Ad- I mean, what I'm what I'm thinking about is almost this. It's like this atomization. It's like what's popular. Like this sense of pop culture is mm-hmm. almost disintegrating. Where, I mean, that's obviously not the case. There's still radio. There's still, right. you know, things are going to be popular. But there there's this room now for so much more diversity of taste. Um, and, you know, on some level, you know, people, there's not going to be, maybe there'll be people, you know, more people will be popular. You know, mm-hmm. there will, the, the, the pyramid, so to speak, may be less steep or something. Right. You know what I'm saying? Where, like, there'd be a, a broader base of, like, maybe slightly less successful people, but you've got, to, if, if you have 10,000 or 20,000 people who really like what you do, you know, yeah. that, that means something these days.
1: I mean, there's a band that I follow, um, that I discovered only probably about a year ago and they're still very small, but if you, you know, people I've talked to, oh, I know them, but their fans are fervent. So they'll, anywhere they'll go in America, whether it's 300 people or a thousand people, their fans will be singing along like you have no idea to every single word they state fans' homes. They do shows at their homes. They and so they don't need to be much bigger for their own good. They prefer being like this and having rabid fans, you know. And they've got their own thing happening. And there are a lot of bands like that. And they can sell their merchandise directly to fans, bypass labels, which is the thing that's happening now. Is you know this everything's going to be direct. So you know your concert tickets, your CDs, your whatever you're selling is going to be sold between you and the fan.
0: Well. There's, there's still then. You know, oh, I mean,
1: of course, they will still be out there, but this is what's happening in a really large way now.
0: Right. There's still Madison Square Garden, right? Goes, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Know, of I was, course.
0: I was listening. I was, you know, you've got bands like, uh, um, like Pearl Jam, right? Or, or we were talking about Prince for a while. Mm-hmm. Prince wasn't doing. He, he, he didn't have a name, right? He couldn't use his own name. Right. He was he was doing these concerts in these roundabout, random venues, like in, you know, like a rundown. You know, theater in 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 suburban New Jersey, and he would tell mm-hmm. people like the day before, and of course, like it would sell out anyway. But right. it, it was it was like painful for the for the the audience because sometimes the sound it was just a terrible sounding place <laughs> to go and see a band because they were shut out of good venues, so to right. speak. There was this like they were blackballed from certain venues, and I, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much of that. You know, continues where people have a lock, and the only way you're getting into this venue is through a certain concert promoter or. Yeah, or I happy. think a lot
1: of that. Yeah, I'm absolutely on the concert promotion side. It's its own world, that. So, so okay. when it's so when
0: you when you when ToonSpotter becomes you know uh, a public, we're, we're probably gonna you know put this out, so we can do it both all together. We want to be able to blow you know blow that up right. and, and, and spread the word. But um, it's awesome talking to you. I really thank oh, you. Oh, you too. Time. Absolutely. And, uh, Good being with you, and, and, uh, and good luck. That was my conversation with Mark Morris. I hope you had a lot of fun listening to it. If you like what you hear, push the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. This is Finding Home with Scott Harris. Spread the word. Finding Home is produced by Andrea Pollock, and check it out. We have new guests every week, and you can find out lots more at scottharris.net, and we'll talk to you another time. Thanks.